Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today's episode is a little bit different. What follows is an excerpt from a longer conversation EAB hosted with university leaders recently around ways that schools across the U.S. and Canada are dealing with their institution's historical ties to slavery and racial oppression. These kinds of discussions make some people feel uncomfortable, but these are issues that have to be addressed and they won't get solved by removing a few statues from your campus. I encourage you to listen with an open mind, and I hope you find value in the discussion. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Thank you again, Jane, for the overview of our research. It's really exciting to see all of that um, come together in that way. Um, My name is Kuru Bole. I'm one of the many researchers that has contributed to this project. And for this part of our session today, it is my privilege to introduce and facilitate a conversation with two of our guests that have truly been really impactful to the development of that research um, and how they are grappling with their own histories. Um, As Jane mentioned earlier, our, our our team had a chance to speak with both Carol Henderson at Emory University and Benoit Bacon at Carleton University. Um, And what was really impactful for us was not necessarily the work that they were doing, which is, again, really uh, a learning moment, a teaching example for all of us, but their views on leadership, um, their views on how they can advance these really large scale equity and racial justice initiatives at their institutions. It's my hope that we can all learn from them in this conversation. So without further ado, um, I'll welcome Benoit and Carol. I think you've both joined me here. Oh, perfect. Uh, We're here, Carol. Nice to see you. Yes, likewise. Yes, well, thank you again for agreeing to spend some time with us. Um, For our time, I'd like to have each of you talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing at your respective campuses at Carleton and at Emory. And then from there, we'll pivot to talk through your perspectives as leaders advancing this work. Um, Benoit, let's start with with you, some of the work that you're you're leading at Carleton. Happy to go first, uh, Karu. Thanks for that. And uh, and many thanks to EAB for inviting me uh, today. It really is a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, uh, for joining us. And uh, uh, Jane, great uh, great presentation, very thorough. Uh, and uh, from my perspective, uh, very interesting and instructive uh, to get us uh, started. Uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, Karu, I'll, I'll try to, hide, to, to, to add perspective from our experience at, uh, at Carleton University. I think, I think that's really all uh, that individual institutions can do is, is share what has worked and what has, has not worked uh, and enrich uh, that discussion on this extremely uh, complex uh, topic. Uh, Carlton, for, for those who might not know, uh, is uh, about uh, 32,000 uh, students strong in the national uh, capital uh, here in Canada, Ottawa, uh, founded in 1942 uh, on uh, the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin uh, nation. So I'll, I'll speak a little bit uh, about this, and, and then I learn. I look forward to learn uh, from you, Carol, and, and from your own uh, experience at Emory. Uh, so by definition, my, my part is from a Canadian perspective, and uh, uh, in a Canadian ca- context, and, and in Canada, uh, when you speak about uh, historical uh, reckoning, uh, usually 
the, the conversation starts with indigenous peoples. That, that's the way that the conversation has evolved uh, here. Uh, there is, of course, uh, a, a broader EDI conversation uh, and a number of anti-racism uh, conversations. Uh, but I would say that uh, the conversation around uh, indigenous peoples and truth and reconciliation uh, is distinct uh, and uh, should be considered linked or parallel, uh, but never be lumped uh, here in Canada with, uh, with the broader conversation uh, or indeed uh, with uh, the other equity seeking groups uh, that uh, uh, are, are being uh, recognized, uh, I would say increasingly. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a very uh, good thing. Uh, I don't think that would surprise you. Uh, there, there is uh, in Canada uh, anti-Muslim uh, racism, especially since 9-11. Since uh, George Floyd, uh, there is more uh, strategic uh, and explicit attention to anti-Black racism, and that is truly a good thing. I, I do want to highlight uh, the work uh, of my friend Gervin Ferron and uh, Wisdom Teti. Uh, the Scarborough Charter on Anti-Black uh, Racism and Black Inclusion uh, that about 40 Canadian institutions will uh, uh, join uh, later this week, uh, which advances this conversation. Uh, Anti-Asian uh, racism, uh, the rights of uh, the LGBTQ plus community, people with disabilities, and so on. But in, in Canada, really, uh, the most advanced conversations is with uh, Indigenous people. And uh, I don't think it will surprise anyone uh, the, the history uh, here in Canada, and I, I think I can say in the U.S. as well, uh, is harrowing. Uh, and uh, it, it's recognized in, in various places to different degrees. Uh, here in Canada, as you highlighted in the deck, uh, it's been uh, formally recognized through uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report uh, in 2015, which was uh, tremendous work. Uh, Senator Mur Murray uh, St. Clair, uh, 94 recommendations uh, to uh, try to establish truth uh, and uh, uh, start to redefine uh, relationships with uh, Indigenous peoples in a better way uh, for uh, the future. So six, six years in, uh, we are uh, trying uh, to do uh, that work and, and universities, I, I, I think, have a, a, a tremendous part uh, to play uh, in this. Uh, not, not to make too long of a history uh, lesson, because these facts are well known, uh, but uh, 2019, the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women uh, and Girls, and we're not, we're talking thousands, uh, and uh, uh, that rightfully uh, continued to raise the profile uh, of, this, uh, of this work. Uh, and then over the course of the last year, uh, there's been a number of finds uh, of uh, uh, children's remains by the hundreds near the sites of uh, indigenous uh, residential schools uh, across the country. And once again, uh, that has raised the level of that conversation. Uh, pe people that failed to either acknowledge truth or recognize that this truth was important, uh, find it increasingly uh, difficult to make that argument. And that is an excellent, uh, excellent thing because there, there's no uh, progress uh, without uh, that truth first uh, being agreed upon. So the, the question is, uh, what, what can we do as universities and, and as university uh, leaders? And, and these are not easy conversations. And I think that's okay. We need to be comfortable uh, with that. We need to sit with the discomfort. Uh, we need to acknowledge that we're going to make mistakes. Uh, and we need to be okay with these mistakes being pointed out uh, and not be defensive about it. Welcome the opportunity to learn. 
Uh, and I think that's what we're uh, doing uh, today. For, for me, um, question number one, uh, as a university president, is the question of allyship. What, what does that mean? Uh, how can I be uh, an effective ally? Mm. Uh, and, and that's a difficult question. Um, I think there's there's two ways uh, you, you can err both ways. Uh, on the one hand, obviously ignoring the situation, looking the other way. I think we're all past that, and that's what universities did for a very long time. Nothing to see here. We're fine. Uh, but then uh, over time, uh, I, I've seen, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen too, uh, people taking allyship uh, by saying, "Well, I'm going to solve this. Then I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that." And uh, and to assume that you have solutions is uh, is a terrible form of allyship, in my experience uh, in in this in this realm. And uh, my my definition of allyship, uh, which I want to share with you uh, today. Um, is uh, based in my work with indigenous peoples who always say here, uh, nothing without us, nothing about us without us, mm. uh, which just makes intuitive sense. How, how can we make any progress without putting at the very center of the work, uh, the very people who are most concerned with the progress uh, of uh, that work? So uh, nothing about us uh, without us is tremendously important. Uh, and Gahante Horn-Miller, uh, uh, one of our indigenous leaders uh, here at Carleton, uh, said to me, uh, you know, uh, allyship is really to know when to step in and to know when to step back. I, I love the, the notion of uh, you know, nothing about us without us. I think that is um, a difficult challenge in figuring out how to actually build those relationships. Um, I want to come back to that uh, because I know Carol has also been thinking through some of these questions at Emory. Um, Carol, I, I would love uh, for you to speak a little bit about the recent symposium symposium that you all had. Um, as, as Benoit mentioned, um, oftentimes uh, work around indigenous communities is thought to be a, a Canadian priority and not something that U.S. counterparts um, really think through or advance, but you all have tackled both uh, the, the conversation around connecting with indigenous communities with your institution's history of slavery. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how that symposium came to be and what you all what you all learned from it at Emory. Sure. So again, let me say thank you so much for the invitation, Benoit. Thanks for sharing what's going on at your institution uh, and for this great work that I think will continue to ground how we look at higher education and what our responsibility is as thought leaders and partners across a nation in an industry that should be at the forefront of reconciliation, reckoning, um, if education doesn't do it, I don't know what can. Let me also say that I want to acknowledge that Emory University was founded in 1836 on the historic lands of the Muscogee Creek Nation, 15 years after the first Treaty of Indian Springs in 1821 dispossessed the Muscogee of land, including both Emory campus locations. We also acknowledge that Emory's university's founders were slaveholders and the Oxford campus was originally constructed by enslaved people. 
to these people and their descendants. We acknowledge the grave injustices inflicted on them, and we recognize the indelible mark of their labor on the creation of the university. That is our land acknowledgement that was approved and sent through and actually um, approved by our, uh, a board of trustees, uh, a version of that so that that now is going to appear on in the student center and other uh, significant parts of our institution. I start with that because that's how the two need, had to be joined during um, the symposium. Uh, the symposium came about because students, the Coalition of Black Organizations and Clubs sent demands to the institution around the George Floyd time that we want to talk about. Uh, and I say George Floyd time because I'm thinking of the spectrum of 2020, uh, mm -hmm. his murder um, um, for us as a nation to witness that trauma. And I let me also say that as the mother of a handsome, gorgeous, African-American son, I did not witness George Floyd's murder. My mind would not allow me to. So I have not seen that. I know from the impact on others, when we talk about trauma-informed leadership, what that murder did for our nation. Um, and that along with Aubrey, the Aubrey trial, which is ongoing now and has its own racial uh, components in our backyard here in Georgia, the murders of eight, of eight members of the Asian and Asian American community, uh, mm -hmm. six of those being women um, and other atrocities uh, across the country meant that our students who are members from some of those communities made it our responsibility to reckon with that in the higher education space. Uh, and so the symposium came about that um, from that, uh, that conversation, those conversations, uh, and we named it the, 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 we had a steering committee. It was, it was a combination of people uh, who, from different backgrounds. And um, the title of it was In the Wake of Slavery and Dispossession, Emory, Racism, and the Journey Towards Restorative Justice, because we did not want to just look at slavery and dispossession of land and people of their land and of their own bodies, um, but also look at what the imprint of that was on the ways in which we govern operations at, in higher educational space. Uh, and, and there were three tracks for the symposium, history, impact, and then healing and restorative justice. And so um, we looked at people presented from all across the country. We had over 60 plus um, proposals come through and then we put them in their tracks. It was a fabulous three days of, uh, of engagement. Um, we filmed it all. Um, and so it is actually in the archives in our library that we uh, partnered with communications and marketing, and they also did follow-up stories and historical reflections um, that were rooted in Emory's own history, and those were published as well. So it was a, it was truly an institutional um, um, effort. Um, and, you know, this work was in the middle of 
doing DEI strategic planning work that we were doing. Um, there were two task forces that have been put together, one on naming and honors to think about names on buildings and what should and should not be honored, as well as a committee on untold stories of marginalized communities, um, which looked at what we weren't, how uninclusive we had been in telling the history of Emory uh, and what was left vacant in that. And so all of that was in the atmosphere and this symposium was a critical component of us saying, this is us unveiled. Um, and I think we have to do that. My hashtag has always been, you can't build a foundation on broken pieces. If you do not admit and start to acknowledge those pieces, what kind of foundation are you building? Um, and um, restorative justice, when I also think about in 2020, Brian Stevenson was our uh, keynote for commencement. And he talked about three things that you have to do. Uh, and this will lead so I can hand it back to you, Karu, but there are three things you have to do. Um, get proximate to the work. You have to have uncomfortable conversations and you have to change the narrative. And those, <laughs> that charge is the, it kind of fueled what we were thinking about on our campus. That was the charge given to our graduates. But it was also as an attendee of that virtual commencement, a charge to us as administrators, as staff members, as, as faculty to look at our work that we do every day and rooted in the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also the principle of equity mindedness. What barriers are available? What barriers do we see um, that prevent us from actualizing a truly inclusive campus community? So this symposium has will continue to be used. The three themes that we are focusing on in DEI are professional development, education, awareness, climate and culture, and accountability in our strategic planning. This symposium adds to that first component it provides an opportunity. We think of DEI training in intercultural competency. If this isn't it, I don't know what is. And the fact that it's recorded means that we'll continue to use that in our first year diversity DEI modules in uh, our race and ethnicity requirement that is required of all students to graduate from, from Emory that, that was instituted this past fall. That kind of work, that's what this symposium will help for. So it's one thing to acknowledge it's another thing to put it into practice and it's another thing for it to live. So what we learned is in order for this work to continue, it must live in the infrastructure of the learning apparatuses of an institution, whether that's through the student portal curriculum, whether it's through onboarding staff who walk on land that they don't know who have not acknowledged who owns it um, and whose labor built the institution. Faculty and staff should know that if they're working at an institution. Um, and my comment has always been, we do our students a disservice and it's unconscionable mm -hmm. that we graduate students who don't have intercultural competencies around these topics. It's unconscionable. Um, uh, and change will not come until we have those conversations. I, I think that's such a strong point um, around the duties of an institution 
on what's really expected, not only from students, but on a, a much larger level, what are the responsibilities that an institution holds to the broader community? Um, thank you both for sharing kind of the high level overview of some of the work that you've done. A, a theme that I, I was hearing in what you both shared was this commitment to discomfort um, and agreeing to tackle difficult questions, difficult histories. But I, I'd love for you know, each of you to talk a little bit more around how you do that as a leader. Um, I would imagine that everyone that is registered and is in attendance here today um, cares deeply about this work and wants to advance this on their own respective campus. Um, but what, what do you do when not everyone is on board? How do you really advance or secure that, uh, that allyship or that, um, that buy-in to advancing this work? Maybe I can start and uh, Please do. Please do. Pick, pick, pick up, Carol, on your excellent phrase that you can't build a foundation on uh, unbroken pieces. Uh, that is so true. And uh, I think, uh, Karu, uh, it, your role as, as a leader is to recognize uh, that there's no foundation and that we're going to have to build it together. At least that's been my experience everywhere I've worked. Uh, and uh, uh, for me, that means strategy. Uh, and uh, the strategy will not work on, 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 unless the process is also right, because the process is how you ensure uh, that everybody is brought along and that your foundation is solid as opposed to, uh, to, bro to broken and uh, uh, not, not, not functional. So uh, as I tried to say in my first uh, uh, intervention, uh, you, you need to step in and say, as a leader, uh, you need to create a space. This is one of your few powers uh, as a university lead leader to, to determine what is important and to create a space for the work to happen. Uh, so this is what we did for Kinemagawin, uh, two, two months into my mandate. Uh, the first major initiative uh, that I commissioned uh, was a, a major task force, uh, and I stepped in to, to create uh, that space. Uh, I was uh, tremendously fortunate uh, to have uh, a brilliant uh, Indigenous leaders prepared to lead that work. Uh, and in, uh, their, uh, in their hands that work to proceed, uh, proceeded through the establishment of a diverse uh, task force, they established a consultation process to make sure that everybody, the community, the Senate, the board, the senior leadership team was brought on board. And uh, it, from, from that moment, it, it, was, it was easy for me to step back and empower the work, uh, but let that work to occur. But then you need to be prepared for the recommendations that come through and, uh, and, and to accept them as valid and, and important, even if some of them can be uncomfortable. Uh, and for us, uh, that led to 41 uh, calls to action uh, in Kinemagwin that we're now uh, in the process of, uh, of implementing. And, and it has been uh, a, tru a truly transformative uh, journey uh, in the short term, uh, though of course we recognize that long-term change will take, uh, will take much longer. There's still a lot of work to do. Thank you so much, Benoit. And uh, for uh, where you all are with the 41 recommendations, we're getting to that point. So we, we've had, we had seven communities come together. I charged seven communities around faculty, undergraduate, graduate and professional staffs, uh, uh, 
and uh, alumni, civic and community partners and postdocs. And those seven communities got together, 10 each, and came up with um, DEI goals focused on the three things that I just mentioned. And so that report was just completed, will be shared with the broader community, and then we will prioritize because over 200 recommendations came in from those seven communities combined. We cannot do 265 recommendations, but those reports will live. Um, they are public. And then I've selected 12 recommendations from each of the seven communities lifted those because they're institutionally driven. Uh, and then we will work with infrastructure to develop the plan, the benchmark, um, set goals, a timeline. In the interim, and I wanna go back to something, that I think Karu, you asked, what do you do when everyone is not on board? Uh, and my, my comment has always been, we love to focus on the 5%, 10% that don't wanna be on board when there's another 90% who do. Uh, and so my focus is usually on that 90 and to get ambassadors in that 90% who will engage the 10%. I may not be the one person or the right person to do that. Um, I also anchor the work in the common and greater good. So even though it is about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and equity-mindedness, we cannot claim to be excellent institutions if we're not inclusive. Uh, my comment has been where the world has always been diverse. This, this is not a new conversation. Um, we've been diverse since the beginning of time. Um, when we have campuses that are one dimensional, that is not demographically or racially or ethnically diverse and otherwise, that's intentional work to make it that way when the world is diverse. So if people can do that, we can undo that. Um, and, and it takes the people. I mean, I, I come from a, a, a people uh, uh, as a woman of color who most of that work has always been grassroots. So you have to go to the folks to get that change. That's how change is leveraged. Um, and so I anchor the work in, in the greater good. DEI and equity mindedness is not optional. It is, it is, it is part of the value proposition of an institution. So that needs to be interwoven into the operational and infrastructure of an institution. Uh, and then you make that how I judge or how I um, evaluate you as an inclusive leader has to have the DEI equity-minded principles interwoven into that process. Uh, and so it has to be a part of just the ways in which we do business. Um, when we separate DEI uh, and, and, uh, and JEDI, if you will, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, from the operational infrastructure, it dies on the vine um, because it's separated from the, from the work and it becomes people-driven, personality-driven. I told my institution, put me out of business. Just, I wish they didn't have to have chief diversity officers. Put me out of business. I, I'm trained as a faculty member. I can find something else to do. Um, but the fact that I lead this is because we have to rethink the ways DEI is included in our the business of higher ed, the responsibility of higher education um, to create informed circles of change so that we can 
um, develop scholars who go out to impact the world in, uh, in transformative ways. Can I add briefly, Karu, because there's so yeah. much good stuff in what in what Carol just said. Uh, I, I think I think we're we're both saying, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that. Uh, to, to get a community of 35 or 40,000 people to agree on what you need to do, you, you, you need formal processes and formal strategies with clear objectives, short, medium, and long-term that you can measure. And you can say, well, we're actually progressing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the process of developing these strategies and then the strategies themselves are the tools to build consensus, to build momentum, to educate your community Uh, And then to measure your progress uh, towards uh, transformation. Uh, I I think this is how you bring everybody on board, Uh, starting with the Board of Governors and the Senate. There's an education piece with these bodies. This is why we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. This is how we're going to do this. This Mm -hmm. is a first draft of what we plan to do. This is a second draft. And, and, and then eventually you get them to want to approve and to want to monitor your progress. So mm-hmm. we've moved our board from a form of suspicion uh, to some of those, pro, uh, to some of those uh, uh, initiatives uh, to the board uh, wanting and looking forward to the annual report on progress. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the Senate was more receptive from the get-go and, and the entire community as well. And, and then you realize uh, that through these processes and to these plan, it's now part of culture to want to do better over time in terms of, uh, of uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism. Excellent. That's the path to transformation. It mm. is. And, and if you think of it now in our national conversations, and what I'll add to is data, um, also presenting data. So we're in, right now we are, um, we have Uh, partner with USC, the Race and Equity Center, and we're doing the NACCC survey campus-wide on race and equity, Um, and excited about what that data will reveal to us and be able to use that to have institutional conversations. But uh, you're absolutely right, To, to move that, to get transformation, you have to involve key campus partners in that conversation. Um, That is a must. My uh, my final question for you both was going to be, if you had a secret recipe, what would it be? What, what what's your your keys to success? But um, both of you have really highlighted some some actionable items that you do in in your own work. Um, and so in lieu in lieu of that question, I do want to ask um, another question to you both. Something that we we talked about um, during our individual calls was the role of identity in this work. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not lost on anyone here that our own individual identities inform the ways in which we understand the histories, the ways in which histories then impact us. I'm curious in your own efforts to move your institutions forward, how have you considered your own identities as factors in, in those efforts? Please, Carol. After well, you. it's kind of hard not to factor that in. Um, when I step into the room, I am a black woman, all of it. And I have to embrace that. I make no apologies for it. Um, I started in this field. And when I say this field, I started in higher education as an assistant professor of English. So I'm Professor Emerita in English and Africana Studies. I bring all of that. I know what, I think the classroom for me, 
I know what education can do, not only for your lived experience, your genealogical uh, family roots, but also the responsibility I had with students who were in my classroom and how I impacted their lives and, and how they continue to, um, how the system keeps uh, paying it forward. Uh, and so I acknowledge who I am, um, acknowledge my principles and values and step into this work based on that. Equity mindedness, the greater good, um, wanting Emory to be its best. Um, caring about people, going into this with compassion, having a lot of patience, um, activating grace cards when needed. Um, mm. and, and we need to give people, I, I, I go into the space not assuming everyone has malicious intent. Um, and if that's where I started, then we can continue to have conversation. If you prove me wrong, we can have that conversation as well. So being nimble enough as a, as a leader to understand how people come to the space, to understand that really in some ways it's about fear, the unknown, the fact that some people think they're going to lose something if they lean into the work and to let them know that the there's enough room at the table for everyone if we keep putting the leaves and the chairs there. So mm -hmm. I, I keep thinking about Thanksgiving and you know how you 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 have your table set and there's only six and then when you invite the family and you add the extra leaves so you can expand. That's what we have to continue to do um, in this work is to give people, let them know it's going to be uncomfortable. But I'm. I, as a black woman, am walking this journey with you because there are things I don't know. And, and mm -hmm. we all come with biases and we're not all perfect. And being transparent about that um, has given me graces and space that I need to get this work done. Um, to, to add to that, uh, obviously, uh, as, as someone who doesn't have uh, the same lived experience, uh, the, the notion of allyship becomes central from my point of view. Uh, and uh, allyship starts with listening. And people often skip that part. Uh, you need to be prepared to meet uh, uh, people uh, on their land, in, you know, on, on their ground, and to listen. Uh, and not to shy away from these conversations and, and to learn to be educated to be, to, I've received an education over the past 10 years uh, in these matters, and I'm, I'm grateful for the mentors who've had the patience uh, to take me uh, through that. Uh, then when you move to action, you got to remember that it's never individual work. It's always teamwork. Uh, so you always have, uh, especially when you're in a position of leadership, uh, the capacity to assemble teams uh, to help you to do that work. Uh, inclu including people with lived experience, uh, and uh, and then um, your your role, uh, especially in the president role, is to open the space and to and to to to, to allow people uh, to to lead that work from the point of view of the people who really understand and live that reality. Um, you, you ask about the the secret recipe. Uh, to to me, it's uh, uh, the notion of allyship and stepping in and stepping back at the right time. Uh, it's process over time towards designing uh, strategies uh, that are clear 
and then implementation in the short, medium, and long term. And uh, you, you mentioned the data, Carol. I think that's essential uh, measurement and demonstration that uh, that we're uh, that we're making progress. Uh, maybe to end on your question, uh, you know, you, you ask about our own identity. It's never an excuse not to get involved. Indeed is what I would like to end. Uh, quite the contrary, uh, I think it's our shared responsibility, everyone, uh, to get involved and to contribute regardless of our identities. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we check in with some of the folks working on the front lines at schools that signed on to EAB's Moonshot for Equity a project designed to eliminate gaps in college graduation rates across entire regions by the end of this decade. Until then, thank you for your time.